Amen. Our reading from God's Word comes from the book of Jude. Jude, verses 17 to 23. Let's give attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Pray in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. And to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Our Father, as we now approach your word, having heard it read, we would ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit in great measure, portioning out to us the truth that is needed to the individual souls in this room and giving to us corporately the measure of that truth that you have planned and intend for this moment. Come Holy Spirit, for apart from you we can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So come, show us yourself. Help us to behold Jesus, to see what it is that he has done, and to answer the call for what it is that he desires us to do. We ask this in his precious name. Amen. Perseverance. It's what we're talking about this morning. A tricky subject. A subject that... Jerry Bridges, that great Christian writer of the late 20th century, probably most known by the classics, the pursuit of holiness or the practice of godliness or of one of my favorites, The Discipline of Grace, a wonderful book that speaks about the calling of the believer in sanctification, a word that means our growth in Christ, becoming more who it is that God has made us already to be. In Jesus, Jerry Bridges, almost a prophet, he just incredibly wise, and said that about perseverance, he said it's something we all want, but are usually unwilling to put forth the effort to actually achieve. Mm, isn't that often true? <laughs> oh Lord, give me perseverance, just don't make me persevere. <laughs> It is the Lord's way, however, in the Christian life to give us, as we will see over the course of our message today, to give us the gift of His grace 
to manifest itself in perseverance in our lives. And perseverance is really the fruit, in so many ways, of being in a saving relationship with Jesus. It's part of the manifest fruit that begins to come forth. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. If I call it a gift, we make it seem like nothing's required. But as James Montgomery Boyce tells us so wisely about the gospel and the Christian life, he says, you know what the gospel is? The gospel is the free gift of God unto salvation that will cost you everything. What he means by that is you don't earn it. You don't even maintain it. It's absolutely a gift of the Lord. But as you receive that gift, you know what it begins to do to your life? It entirely makes you a living sacrifice. It turns you into a living sacrifice that's acceptable and pleasing in the sight of God. And if we don't see a desire to be a living sacrifice, then it begins to beg the question, have we really received the gift? Jude is pressing into that kind of truth. As he tells us here in verses 17 to 23, he wants us to know that perseverance is a call that has been placed on every individual Christian's life. And finishing the race is critical to what it means to being a true follower of Jesus. C.H. Spurgeon knew this was tough. He was challenging his own congregation there in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, and describing the challenge of perseverance in only a C.H. Spurgeon way. He said, remember, friends, it's by perseverance that the snail made it to the ark. <laughs> the snail made it to the ark. You know, it took some animals not quite as long as it took other animals to get to the ark. And for some of us in this room, it takes us longer than, say, the average bear to get to certain places in the Christian life. It's okay. By perseverance, the snail made it to the ark. We're asking the Lord to give us that grace gift, the grace gift of perseverance that will manifest itself in a life of sacrifice that can say with Peter, I make every effort to follow hard after my Savior. So Jude, I believe, gives us what we're going to call today a prescription for perseverance. And there are three antidotes in the prescription for perseverance that he gives to us. We see first in verses 17 to 19, that we must take the word at its word. We must take the word at its word. Look with me in verses 17 to 19. Notice how he starts by giving us this first strategy. He says, but you must remember, beloved. You must remember. Jude knows very well that the human condition is one that is prone to forgetfulness. It would be so nice if we only had to learn things once. I don't learn things just once. I have to learn things over and over and over again. And there are times where I push back from what it is I've learned and I think, I should have learned that 10 years ago. Why is that taking me so long to learn? And it's why in the fallenness of our broken condition, that we don't simply latch a hold of something and never let go. But that we become people who are forgetful. When we look at the Old Testament, we see the people of Israel, especially through that marked book known as Deuteronomy, 
where the people of God were constantly forgetting the commandments and the precepts of the Lord and were straying left and right, getting in all kinds of trouble. It was Moses who wrote to them over and over and over again, people remember what it is that the Lord has already said. Peter, when he writes his second epistle, he says those well-known words, it is right that I stir you up by way of reminder. It is right that I stir you up by way of reminder. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, says, It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. It is a safeguard for you. If you're one who is often struggling with remembering what you know, you know it, but you forget it, because you don't really know it, you're always getting to know it, we're trying to grow into the knowledge of it, we want it to stick, If that's the struggle that you often face in the Christian life, and it is almost like each Sunday when you show up, or you come to your small group, or you listen to something, you read something, and you go, oh, yeah, oh, I knew that, but I've just totally forgotten. I've been eaten up with anxiety. I've been angry. I've been questioning. I've been doubting. And now you, you, you receive the word of truth and it brought back to memory the things which you needed in order to establish spiritual solidity and strength to remind you of what is true. If you experience that, Jude is saying that's normal Christian living. But don't be a people who forsake the discipline of remembering. We actually live in a day and time where I think more often we want to come to church, we want to come to a small group, we want to listen to something, we want to hear something new. I want to hear something new. Give me a new method and a new approach. Let me see something novel that's going to interest me. I want to hear the latest news. I don't want to hear the good news, the old news. I want a trend. I'm not sure I want truth. Those are fundamentally different. We're warned in the scripture to not be people who have itching ears that are looking for teachers of instruction that will simply accumulate Knowledge and teaching that's based upon our own passions. It's often our tendency. And so there's a challenge here in this charge to remember. We we must be a people of remembrance. And notice what he calls us to remember. He says, I want you to remember the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How many times do you experience something in life and you think, I didn't think it was going to be like this. Many of us have followed Christ for a number of years and we have thought in our earlier days that walking the Christian life would look a certain way and then it didn't. It was a lot harder. It was a lot more confusing at times. It was a lot more mysterious. There are twists and turns to the path of following Christ. And we were sometimes under the false assumption that it was going to be always onward, upward. But it looks more like one of those graphs in terms of our walking, and we're very surprised, sometimes shocked by it, sometimes deeply disturbed, and it's what's probably happening at the church that Jude is writing to. These are a people who are experiencing false teaching. They're seeing people begin to fall away from the faith and fall into immoral behavior, as we looked at last time. And once those people who were sitting in the pews with them on a really warm July Sunday morning are no longer there because they've left the faith. And it's been completely disillusioning and disorienting for the congregation. And he says, but let me tell you this, friends. The apostles saw this coming a long time ago. 
Now think of how encouraging that is. When, when Judas, the teacher and the writer here, says, hey, you remember what the apostles said? They said that wolves are going to come into the fold teaching twisted things that are going to lead the flock away. They, you knew this, but you forgot. You forgot. You, you weren't ready, and so it took you by surprise. So often in our lives where providence comes in in some way, shape, or form, some difficulty, some challenge, and we are totally, totally discombobulated with life, and then somewhere along the way, maybe a long way, we remember something that we had long forgotten, and in doing so, we realize if we had had that in the forefront of our hearts and our minds, it would have created a stability that wouldn't have looked a lot like that chart because we would have known to anticipate what God has already told us. He says, remember the predictions of the apostles. In fact, if you do that, it'll save you a lot of heartache and confusion in the long run. You'll know what to be looking for. There are going to be people who are scoffing, he says. Think of someone with a sneer on their face, with a little, a little mocking tone who's belittling the basic truths that you and I believe. And they're saying, but there's a, there's a better way. There's a new way. There's a more sophisticated way. There's a more philosophically honest way. However it is, they're describing it. And what they're actually doing is drifting away from the bedrock essentials of the faith. And they're getting lost in a minefield of speculation. Listen, this shows up a whole lot in our own context. And you know it even in the context of your own life. Where you begin latching a hold of maybe something that's just slightly wrong. It's not as clear as black and white. It's just kind of half true and half wrong. You latched hold of it and its trajectory took you off. And before you know it, you begin to realize my soul is all disarray. My life now is moving in a direction towards disaster. Things are falling. What happened? And you can often trace it back to a false assumption, a belief that you laid hold of that ultimately sent your life into some spiral. In our own days and times, we have to be really concerned about this because you have messages coming at you from all sorts of medium all of the time. And many of those messages are wanting to reinforce things you already desire to believe, even though they're often not true, or you want to believe because you're wanting to make allowance for behaviors that you've kind of made alliances with. That seems like what's actually happening here. He says here these scoffers aren't actually constructing a philosophical system and teaching that they believe is true. They're trying to actually give freedom to their ungodly passions. That's the language he uses. Think of how this works. Have you ever, you ever applied for a job that you really, really wanted? You've applied for the job. You're waiting to hear back on that job. And in the meantime, you're going to get advice from a couple of people. But you've already decided that the advice that you get from those people needs to be advice that's going to tell you to take the job if it comes. You've already made up your mind. What you're looking for is reinforcement for what you've already settled on with regards to your decision, your choices, your behaviors. Many of us actually approach the Christian life that way. We're listening to a sermon and we're hoping he's going to commend essentially what I already believe or reinforce the way I'm already living rather than to be confronted by that word and then be reshaped and conformed by that word. 
To have that word lead us down a path of repentance where we begin to realize we've latched hold of false truths and they've given, they've given direction to false practices that now have to be abandoned as I begin to follow Christ. That's a really difficult thing. It's why we need the grace of God to lay the foundations and not try to construct a system that already we've decided is going to give release to the things we already want. I gave the example in the early service of having a conversation about three months ago with a young man in our community who was giving me a biblical defense for his use of pornography. A biblical defense for his use of pornography. That might hit your ears in kind of an odd way. But he had, through language of incarnational theology and God's desire to redeem the body and the freedom of artistic expression created a wonderfully biblically twisted argument for what he just wanted to do. And that's true of all of us. We're tempted in those ways. And it seems that the scoffers in here are tempted in that way. I want you to think through this, just thinking a little bit about how this shows up today. Sometimes it shows up when we discuss morality, you know, our, how it is we ought to think and what we ought to do, our lives, and it's always ambiguous rather than clear. You should be worried about that. It's not always clear. There are things that are very ambiguous, but sometimes we just like the ambiguity. It gives us the elasticity of behavior we're looking for. Sometimes when it comes to belief, we prefer to talk about perspectives than truth. It's just the way you look at it. It's your angle on things. I see you grew up in the southeast and in a Christian family, and you have this formative shaping, and psychology and sociology would teach us that clearly you're going to land in Xbox, not the video game, but the box that is X. That sort of discussion of determinism that's based upon cultural context rather than upon truth that doesn't change. Or talk like when it, you know, life is just so complex, so complex that nothing's simple anymore. Where things that are like the basic callings on your life with regards to Christ are actually pretty simple, they're just often hard. And they require perseverance. Instead, now it's just really difficult to figure out how to do these things. Because there's so many competing pressures and there's so many things going on. And you're trying to balance all these things and people's emotions and how they're feeling about stuff. So much so, it's so complex that we just don't do what's clearly the right thing to do. Now when you begin to understand false teaching in the midst of the way that we're unpacking it this morning, you begin to realize it's pretty close to home. That's pretty close to home. There's a gut check that's here. In the context of Judas, he is speaking to these believers and he's saying, listen, a mark of the prescription of true perseverance comes when we begin to take the word at its word. We follow the predictions of the apostles. We lay hold of it and we tease it through and we become a community that's committed to remembering what is so easy to forget. That's the first thing that he teaches us. The second thing that he teaches us is that we are a people who are to live by the love of God. We are to live by the love of God. In fact, he puts it in the language of keep yourselves in the love of God. This is verses 20 and 21 uh, in our text. 
in this context, in these two verses, there's really only one command. It looks like it's many commands, but it's really only one command. The command is, keep yourself in the love of God. Surrounding that command, there in uh, verse 21, are three participial phrases. Those participial phrases are meant to support the command of keep yourself in the love of God. So his focus, keep yourself in the love of God. Then the question you want to ask is, how do we do that, Jude? You do it in these three ways. You build yourself up in your most holy faith. You pray in the Holy Spirit. And you look for or wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's the way you do it. That's how you keep yourself. That's the prescription for keeping yourself in the love of God. Now, before we jump into those phrases just a moment, I want to address what may be a pause that kind of rises in your own heart as you hear the language of keep yourself in the love of God. The reality is Jude is not saying, and I think it can be misconstrued this way, he's not saying that there's a potential for us to fall out of love with God or love in God, as if God has a cosmic daisy that he is plucking petals off of in the heavenly places, depending on how good or bad your day has been. Now, it's not not weak like that. It's not as if he's going to dump you if things don't go well. Nowhere in the Bible does does the scriptures teach that salvation needs to be earned or maintained by our efforts. And yet the very same Bible celebrates and commands our effort in the living out of our salvation. J.I. Packer, I think, put it very well when he said that salvation, as it relates to the human person, is never in relationship to earning or maintaining, but it is regularly in the Scripture in relationship to effort or energy. For the Bible, those are not in contradiction to each other. It is the transformation that comes in the gospel that gives life to the energy of the Spirit that helps us pursue living the Christian life. That's why the Apostle Paul can claim that he works harder than any of them, yet not I, but it is the Spirit of God who works in me. That's why I can write in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That dynamic must be kept in tension. A resting in what only God can do and a motivation and a discipline that arises in pursuit of what he has already done. That's got to be the spirit of that pursuit. And that's what it is that Jude is really focusing on. It's one thing to be in the love of God. It's another thing to live from a place of staying put in the love of God. That's different. That's different. In fact, yesterday I was canoeing with some of the youth here at Cornerstone, and many of us were learning how to canoe for the first time, and we learned an important principle. The principle is, if you don't do anything, you drift. It's just the way it works when you're on a river. When you're on a river, it's, if you want to stay still, you're going to have to work hard to stay still. Because the river, by its very nature, moves you. It takes you somewhere. We often, in our own lives, think, let's just sit here. Let's just stay here. Let's just, let's just rest for a little bit, roll back on our laurels, and, 
and, and just kind of release things for a while. And when we begin to do that, you never stay put. You always drift because we are living beings. You know, you know a plant, it's either living or it's dying. It's either growing or it's fading. It's not just staying put because it's organic. It's a living reality. That's true with us and it's true with our souls, which means that it needs constant attention. You're going to have to work to stay put in the love of God. We've got to work at it. And the work that he describes here is a work of building yourself up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for the mercy of God that will be revealed at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me work through these just quickly so you can see the dance of keeping yourself in the love of God. If you experience oftentimes the felt sense that God does not love me, I am not the beloved. That's the way he's been referring to all the Christians here in the book of Jude. Notice he's already used that word twice in the context of this particular passage. You are the beloved. I speak to you as the beloved. He wants to reinforce the real identity of who they are as the people of God. They are beloved of him. But we often don't walk around with the sense of God's love being the very identity of our persons. Instead, we feel as good as our last success we feel as bad as our last failure Uh, we are as controlled by approval of those around us we are controlled by the performance of how well it is that we've been done and the movement of our souls feels drifty always pushed to and fro I had a friend dear friend who spoke to me about the idol of approval, which is something I've spoken to you about as the Lord has worked hard in rooting that more and more out of my own life. One of the things he said, he said he realized that over the course of his first five, six, seven years in ministry that he was only as good as his last sermon. Now to change the illustration, only as good as the last business deal, only as good as the last interaction with my spouse, only as good as the last interaction with my children. Only as good as how much money's in the bank account. That's the sense of worth. The sense of self-value, the sense of identity is derived from things outside of being the beloved. Now you begin to say, oh, I drift all the time. Like my life is a constant drift. You see why he says in command, keep yourself in the love of God. The irony of this passage is he's saying, if you work hard to keep yourself in the love of God, guess what becomes the fruit of that effort? Progress in the Christian life. Progress comes with the fighting for the maintaining of staying in the love of God. And the instruments he gives us here are word, our prayer, and the waiting on the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it's pretty clear in the Word. What does the Word do? Well, the Word reminds you of the promises of God's love and what it is that He's done for you. That's what it does. That's its work. And we need to hear it in order to be rooted in, to remain in the love of God. But the praying in the Spirit, well, what is that? Well, it's not some mystical ecstatic experience. It's praying with dependency on the Spirit Allowing the will of the Spirit to direct one's prayers. It's having your soul resigned to the work and the will of God. 
When you come to a place where you realize his promises are this rich and here's what he's done. I've been bought with a price. I'm no longer my own. And I begin to pray from the position of that knowledge of his promises. I begin to pray things like, Lord, I desire to see your kingdom come. I desire to see your will be done. Lord, I desire if it means I need to do this radical step here. I desire if it needs to be done, do this step over here. I'm willing to go into this environment. I'm willing to go in to take that step. I, I'm willing to be faithful in areas that are difficult and awkward and strained and tentious for me because I know it's your call upon my life. We begin to pray with dependence and with spirit direction. And that solidifies us in remaining in the love of God. We begins to strengthen us. And then, you know what happens? We're not, in, we're not devoid of the Spirit, like those scoffers, and we're not worldly in focus. We put our eyes on the horizon. He says, we are to watch. We are to watch for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the mercy that will come. We are to renew our minds. A minute ago, in confession of sin, I simply tried to raise up our chins to look at the horizon spiritually when I, when I said, you know, one day, positionally in Christ right now, you are the beloved, perfectly righteous in the eyes of God. And one day, by his grace, you will be personally righteous. That's coming. Friends, that's as good as done if you are in him. Now, in that moment, if that registers in your heart, you, want, you know what the existential experience is in your life in that moment? For those of you where that registered spiritually, you felt remained in the love of God, kept in the love of God. That's what you experienced. Why? Because the truth in prayer, looking at the horizon, bolstered that sense of solid identity in the love of God. Now, when you begin to see taking the word at its word Keeping in the love of God through this dance of the disciplines that he's given to us, you begin to see now, we don't just sit in a cross-legged yoga posture the rest of our lives. He says at the end of this section, we begin to minister to others. Did you know one of the great fruits that you are remaining in the love of God is that you are extending that love to those who are in desperately need of it around you? And he gives us three different groups. He says there are those in your midst that are doubters. There are those in uh, your midst who, are, who have bitten off the false teaching and are headed towards destruction. And there are those in your midst that are caught in immorality and all kinds of defilement. And you've got to know how to navigate that. He says, for those who are doubting, show them mercy. Be gentle, compassionate with them. Speak the truth, but do it with conviction and firmness. Walk with them, assure them that what they had first embraced is exactly what they should lay hold of and teach them to distinguish false teaching from true teaching, but do it with gentleness. And he says there are those who have bought off the false teaching and they are running headlong over a cliff and they're calling it heaven. You need to snatch them. That's the language, it's very strong language. Grab them before it's too late. They are headed towards the fires of destruction and allusion to eternal punishment. So when you see someone like that, you need to run after them. You need to plead with them not to latch hold of the false new news, but the old good news and come back to the faith. And then he said, there's those in your midst that are struggling with immorality and all kinds of defilement and sin. And you need to show them mercy, but you need to do so with fear. Or we might read with caution. And this just shows Jude's wisdom. He's saying, if you, you, you've experienced this, where you're ministering to someone, or you're in close relationship with someone, you're seeking to care for them, and their sin is particularly tempting to you as well. How many of us have started out trying to do good for another? 
One who was struggling and then kind of get caught in their web of sin and struggle. He says, show them mercy, but do so with fear. He says, hating even the garment stained by sin. He's referring to the inner tunic. The garment that's been soiled by the flesh. Do not get close to that. You need to, you need to be cautious in showing them mercy. Know your margins. Know your weaknesses. Because you can easily drift from the love of God yourself. You see how pastorally wise Jude is in this instruction? He says, listen, if you're taking the word at its word, you are pursuing and discipline, remaining in the love of God. It overflows into a ministry of service to others. Let me tell you how this works. When you have grasped the love of God and you are sitting in it, you're staying put within it, there is nothing that gives your heart more delight than to see others doing the very same thing. There's nothing else. That's what just gives you so delight, gives you such joy when you begin to see others coming into the same bedrock truths that you know have been transformative for your life. You're now seeing in them. There is a heart of multiplication and ministry that rises up in the person who is staying put in the love of God. You know why we know that? Because the God who loves us is never a God who sits back. He's a God that goes on mission. Jesus was one who came from heaven to earth, not because he didn't have anything to do. He came here because he loved us, John 3, 16. He remained in the Father's love. We know that because he was one who listened to the voice of his Father. He was building himself constantly up in the faith. He was one that was constantly praying to his Father, praying in the Spirit. He was one that always had his, his sights set on the horizon, the mission of which he was called. And he came here so that he could enjoy with us, we enjoy with him, the beautiful love and the glory of God in the gospel for all eternity. That's what he wanted to see. That's what, that's what the, delighted Jesus. And when we are in the delight of Jesus, that's what delights us. That's what delights us. Now, he won't always be like sweet and rapturous, maybe like this moment <laughs> for some of us as we're pondering these truths. It'll be kind of like Philippians 2, that he endured the cross. He persevered. He despised the shame, but for what purpose? For the joy that was set before him. He was willing to undergo the suffering and the challenge and the difficulty because he's had his heart and his eyes set upon that which is good, right, true, beautiful, and yes, eternal. You know, that's really what gets us going is when we are drawn by the beauty of something and we want to pursue and acquire the beauty of that thing, and we are willing to sacrifice for that purpose. I mentioned a few weeks ago that I have a trainer. Yes, a physical trainer. You've been encouraging me in that. Thank you. Kind. I think you're worried about my health too. Um, my enjoyment of my work with my trainer is directly proportional to the clarity I have for the vision of the physical health that I am pursuing. And if I lose sight of that and drive by Krispy Kreme, 
it gets harder in the gym. Just does. When we are not renewed in the spirit of the Lord, when we are not building ourselves up in the faith, reminding ourselves, we're not praying in the spirit, we don't have our eyes set, we become consumed with this world. We become people who are devoid of the spirit. We become people who act worldly. And actually we cause division. We cause division. Now, let me, just as we close, let me just note this. You wouldn't think this, but we, often, we are often under the assumption if we just loosen up a little bit, people will get along more. Culturally, that's often the message that you'll hear, but we're often that way too. Hey, just loosen up a little bit. Like Your beliefs are too narrow. Your practices are too narrow. Now, can we be legalistic about those things and overstep the bounds of Scripture? You better believe it and suffocate the work of the Spirit and create all sorts of division and, and struggle in that direction. But that's not what Jude is addressing. Jude is addressing the message that says, hey, listen, why can't we just all believe what it is that we want to believe and pretty much live and let live? Now, I'd like to ask you, does that feel like a contemporary message? And I want to also ask you, does it seem like things are getting friendlier? No, but we thought they would. And it's because we didn't listen to the predictions of the apostles. Is that actually when you are narrowed to the exact narrowing of the Bible, you are exactly as broad as you are supposed to be. You're exactly as broad as you're supposed to be. And you can expect not a kind of peace in word only, but you can expect a peace that is wrought of the Spirit and the unity of God begins to be the evidence of ones who's keeping in step with the truth and the Spirit. That's what we're pursuing together. That's what we're pursuing together. We believe that's what Jesus is pursuing. We're seeking to follow that after him. So as Jesus, the one who has accomplished this mission already, the one who has been the one person who has really persevered, the one who has really finished the race, the one who really does hear, well done, good and faithful servant, that same one, if you're in him, will ensure that you hear those words too. With that grace, let's run. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us to hear what it is that we're supposed to hear. Believe what it is we're supposed to believe and do what it is we're supposed to do. Send your spirit to accomplish that work among us. In Jesus' name, amen.